and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Good to be with you, Zach, and Vivian Cabrera. Hello, 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 friends. How are we doing today? Um, Ashley, what's what's new with you? Um, well, the big news in my life is I got a sourdough starter, hopping on that quarantine ba- bandwagon, um, and then uh, proceeded to kill it with its first feeding. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. It's a lot more complicated <laughs> than I thought it would be. Every every instruction guide was like a 30-minute video, and I was like, I'm not spending 30 minutes to learn how to feed a pile of flour. <laughs> and it's a commitment. You have to like feed it forever, and that's a lot, I think. I know. It's too much. This is interesting. I have a theory about the rise of sourdough starters. Oh. Pun intended. <laughs> exactly. There's like these this group of young people that often instead of having kids will 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 purchase a pet mm. to, you know, test out the level of caring for a living thing. Wow, I feel personally attacked. <laughs> for the people who are afraid of an an caring for an animal, they're like, oh, maybe I will try the sourdough starter instead. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> How are you, Zach? <laughs> I'm good. Speaking of caring for uh, for living things, we're <laughs> my wife and I started gardening since you know the weather's transitioning a little bit. We're spending a little bit more time outside, but it's we're just pulling weeds right now. the The garden we inherited was uh, not well kept, mm. so we are trying to start from scratch. But that's yeah, but good. nice yeah. to have some outdoor space. Yeah. Well, we we here in Manhattan do not have that luxury. <laughs> However, um, my roommates and I were discussing if we should buy a grill. And go move into the sidewalk grilling um, <laughs> group of people during this quarantine. Uh, so we will see. <laughs> we'll keep you posted. Are other people grilling on the sidewalks? Um, in our old neighborhood, yes. Here, haven't seen that yet, but maybe we can start the trend. That sounds fantastic. Uh, moving on to our interview this week. Uh, so it's it's May. Mid-May, the time when, you know, students would be celebrating proms and graduation. Uh, a lot of that has been put off, but American Media is marking uh, this week with a lot of education-themed content. So we have a special education print issue, and we're talking to Greg Hillis. He's an associate professor of theology at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, and the author of a really fantastic piece um, on America Magazine's website, titled we're all monks now yeah this it really does feel like that with all of a sudden we're at home all the time trying to pray (laughs) praying maybe not praying maybe more like (laughs) binge watching but uh i thought this was a yeah this piece was super popular on america's platforms because i feel like it resonated with a lot of people we're like we're now thrust into this vocation that we didn't choose or at least a lot of us are yeah what really stuck out to me is you know when you think of monks you think about or at least I think about like isolation being cut off from the world. And I less often think about the community aspect of it. Like they are living uh, with the same people day in and day out uh, and having to navigate those tensions. And that's something that um, resonated me with the piece. Um, you know, living with my family comes with a lot of joys, but also challenges. Um, so I found his piece really, really helpful. Um, and I'm excited to hear more from Greg about the wisdom of Trappist monks. Yeah. And to quote um, what Greg writes in his piece, he says, um, so much of our anxiety revolves around wanting to control the uncontrollable and the pandemic can teach us the futility of this. And I feel like that we're all living that right now, that we can't really, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Um, so we just got to go with what we have today. But I think um, 
people really like saw themselves in this piece. Um, so we're excited to have him on. So Greg, for those who are less acquainted with the intricate world of Catholic religious orders, can you can you describe the types of monks we're talking about? The the Cistercians. What's what's their charism? What what's their uh, daily life like together? Yeah, well, I live really near the Abbey of Gethsemane, uh, which is here in Kentucky, and it's um, the oldest monastery in the United States. Um, the Cistercians uh, began in the 11th century as a reform movement of the Benedictine um, of Benedictine monasticism, and its main focus is on uh, prayer and silence. What are some of the like unifying, uh, I guess, traditions and features? of the Cistercians? Like defining qualities. Defining qualities, um, long periods of silence. So um, uh, that's one of the defining qualities, but also long periods of praying uh, the Psalms in choir. So the Abbey of Gethsemane, they begin um, very similarly to other Cistercian monasteries. They begin their day at three in the morning and they have their longest uh, office of prayer at that time. And then they pray together seven more times um, during the day. And they pray all of the Psalms, all 150 of the Psalms every two weeks. They chant them every two weeks. Um, they go to bed at about eight o'clock, so they still get around seven hours of sleep. Um, but in between that period, uh, those periods of silence, or sorry, those periods of prayer are long periods of silence and of reading. Um, they also uh, the other thing that Cistercians are known for is manual labor. So they always want to live off of the, the work of their hands. So they work about four, four or five hours a day. And then when they're not working and when they're not praying, they are in silence. And how, how were you introduced to them? Like when did you, when did they become part of, of your life? I started reading uh, Thomas Merton when I was 23 years old. And uh, I had a copy of the Seven Story Mountain on my uh, on my shelf. I, I still don't really know how I had that copy of the Seven Story Mountain, but uh, I decided to read it. And um, it's it's a dated book. It's not, you know, I don't think it's his his best book, but it, it, it for some reason just bowled me over. And so I started reading everything I could of his and particularly started reading his journals and his private journals outline essentially what a monastic day is like. And so that's kind of how I got interested in um, in, in monasticism. And getting to know um, monks and their daily rhythms, um, what was it about that that you thought would be relevant to what, as you said, we're all going through now, living kind of like monks, at least those of us um, who who are at home um, and not considered essential workers? Uh, what, it, what, what did you, what about their life did you think you wanted to draw on in this time of isolation? Well, I got thinking, you know, I have three boys and so it's my wife and I and our, our three sons. And, you know, we really haven't, uh, apart from going out to get some supplies and whatnot, we've, we've largely been in our home. And I sent an email to one of my, uh, my monk friends. I don't know how else you talk about that, but one of my <laughs> monk friends, um, and basically said, you know, uh, what is life like at the monastery? And, and his reply was, you know, the enclosed have become truly enclosed. And, and I realized that we also have become enclosed, you know, in our house and, uh, and in our homes. And so I, I got thinking to myself, um, 
what could the monks teach us um, about how to use our time in isolation and in enclosure profitably? I'm guessing that binge watching Tiger King was not one of those lessons. <laughs> I have not. I, I'm one of the few who has not watched um, Tiger King, I have to say. But what were some of the the main points or the lessons that you think that they can teach the rest of us? Well, um, you know, the, some of the things that they mentioned, I think, were really helpful. And, and that is that um, despite the fact that they spend a lot of time in silence, it is always silence in community. And um, I've seen an awful lot of my family in the last eight weeks, right? Um, and, and there are times when, you know, I'm getting on their nerves and they're getting on my nerves and whatnot. And it's very similar to uh, the fact that in a monastery, I mean, you're literally surrounded by the same people every day uh, with their squeaky shoes or with, you know, the weird coughs that they make in choir or whatever. And... Um, and, and I think one of the most important things that um, the monks said to me about what it is to live in community with each other is is the importance of being completely present to one another. Um, that is, that somehow silence and enclosure in silence can allow us to, um, to be with the other person and to allow them to be precisely who they are without judgment or without um, uh, uh, a sense that we're getting tired of them. And that was, in fact, the one thing, one of the things that people sent me notes about. Uh, there was a woman who sent me a note about how um, the monks really taught her something about what it means to be present to her two-year-old, um, which I thought was really interesting. I was going to ask, um, as a professor, you are in touch with with young people, um, and so maybe attuned to some of the specific challenges they're facing right now. I'm wondering uh, what you're hearing from them, what what what's weighing on them, and what from the life uh, at at the Trappist Monastery uh, you might want to impart to them. Well, uh, first of all, I'm glad that you didn't include me in the young people category, um, <laughs> but that's fine. I won't take offense to that. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, the, I think the, the, the students that I have, I've noticed in the last 11 years that I've taught that, that young people are becoming increasingly anxious. And I think that has something to say about what our society is like and the sort of pressures that young people are under. Um, and those pressures are not decreasing, right? They're increasing, and it's becoming um, really unbearable uh, for many young people who are trying to find some sense of meaning in uh, in a world that is, you know, pretty complex and and difficult. And the current pandemic has only you know, only manifested that that much more. And so the young people that uh, that I've talked with, you know, this this situation has caused them a great deal of anxiety. And it was interesting in my intro theology course, we just happened when we had to all go online, we just happened at that moment to be exploring the life and writings of Thomas Merton. And then we, uh, and then after that, we read a book together by Martin Laird, who's an Augustinian monk at Villanova University called Into the Silent Land. And so I was essentially introducing them to this idea of the contemplative life. And I just read their final exams yesterday in which they kind of reflected on what it was that they 
learned and what was most beneficial in the class. And every single one of them um, mentioned the importance of contemplation. And of course, this is not a uniformly religious group. It's not a uniformly Catholic group. I would say, you know, it's 50% Catholic. And of those Catholics, I would say, you know, maybe 20% are, are practicing. And yet all of them were drawn to what Merton and Laird and, and therefore the, mon- the monks have to say about contemplation and what it could mean for them. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. A lot of them talked about how calming it was, for example, and, and how much it seemed to give uh, a, a little bit of meaning in a world that they see as being a little bit meaningless. I'm wondering, like, it seems like even before this, the broader culture has been more and more interested in meditating or mindfulness, but I'm not sure that we've seen like <laughs> a decrease in our anxiety levels. No. And I'm wondering why that is, or if there's anything unique to, or is there any reason to think that the type of contemplation that the monks are doing is going to sort of relieve us of some of this anxiety? What's, what's common to current uh, circumstances for young people is that uh, they are uh, they're increasingly busy, right? Like, so they have so many things that they're doing. Um, and in addition to that, they have to be constantly online. And so there are levels of distraction and there are, um, uh, there's a busyness that I think is, is pretty unique uh, to, to our time, right? That, that young people, <clears throat> when they read, for example, about Merton talking about the ways in which it's so easy to be distracted, their uniform response is, but he was writing in the sixties before phones, right? And, and how is it, what's distracting? What could possibly be distracting when you can't stream Tiger King on Netflix, or you can't, you know, update, you know, what your sourdough bread looks like or doesn't right on Instagram. Um, and, uh, and so I think, um, uh, what, what, what attracts young people to this is that it's time specifically set aside from the phone, from the concerns that are going on. Um, and I think, uh, part of, part of our issue is that we're, our online presence, we're trying to create a sort of self out there that we're then trying to live into and or live up to, I should say. And silence doesn't allow us to do that. We just become confronted with our naked selves, as it were. What um, I'm wondering what advice you have to offer for people who kind of are hearing this and want to engage in that silence, but like are, are struggling or need like practical tips on how to be open to that kind of uh, meditation. How do we do nothing? Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's easy to say just like sit in silence, but when you're like, how? How do we do nothing? I, just, I need I need practical <laughs> tips. There, I'll say it. In my classes, what I'll do is I'll just tell them, without giving them any direction at all, I'll just say, "All right, we're all going to be silent for five minutes," and it's just utter terror, right? I mean, it's it they 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 sit in silence for five minutes and their minds are just, and my mind, frankly, are, you know, just wandering everywhere. And, uh, and, and we can't, we're, we're looking for things to, to sort of grab onto. And so there are a number of ways in which the monks uh, give some guidance about what this kind of, what we can do during silence. One way is uh, what I mentioned in the piece, and that is Lectio Divina, right? Um, uh, holy reading, where 
instead of, if you're like me, I read a lot of things very quickly, right? I just sort of digest them and whatnot. This is a different kind of reading where it's slow and meditative, you know, 15 minutes where you're just focused on a small passage of scripture. It might even be just one word in the scripture, um, not trying to go through uh, a huge chunk, but just meditatively allowing um, the, the word of God to speak to you in that silence. That's one way. The other thing that um, the monks talk about, and this specifically Martin Laird talks about in his book, Into the Silent Land, is to allow yourself or, or to, um, to have something that Martin Laird calls a prayer word. Uh, the Jesus prayer, for example, is, is one of those prayer words, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. The monks, especially in Eastern Christianity, but the monks down at Gethsemane also do this, well, where, where they'll spend you know, uh, long periods of time in silence repeating that prayer over and over again. And that's, again, another way to give your mind something to do um, while you're in this silence. And the whole point is that after long periods of practice of this, right? it's not instantaneous, but after long periods of practice at this, uh, the monks will talk about how, and, and Merton will talk about this, that what you end up finding is uh, that your own self is not the self that is distracted with all the difficulties of life and all the sort of anxieties that we have and, and everything, but rather that, that there is this silent self within us where God resides and where God is found um, and that is unchanging and, and is there no matter what is going on in life. And, and that is, I think, where that broader alleviation from anxiety can kind of come from. That's actually a perfect segue for uh, the next segment of the podcast, where we're just going to go on mute for 20 minutes, and <laughs> the listeners are just going to have to sit there with themselves. <laughs> uh, if only. Yeah, could you not? <laughs> I think people would just skip it. I think they would turn it off. Yeah, or at least on like two times yeah. speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rushing through the silence. <laughs> Very efficient silence. <laughs> um, one one thing that really stuck out to me about your piece um, is this recognition that one of the things that, I don't know, is both a big cause of anxiety, but also an opportunity during this time of quarantine um, is realizing how much is beyond our control um, with this pandemic. Um which can be very scary because I personally like being in control and feeling in control. Um, but you also talk about how it how it can be an opportunity. Um, I'm wondering what that looks like practically. Like, what are the things in your own life now that like you've relinquished? What are the things you're focusing on? What 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 have you found you can control in a helpful way? Well, let me just say that I'm very much a work in progress on this. So um, <laughs> I, when I emailed the, uh, the monks about this, I asked, you know, I asked them all the same question, you know, what do we do? How, how do we deal with the anxiety that's, that's coming out here? Um, you know, that, that is necessarily a response to this. And I'm also someone, I mean, I've been pretty open about this with my students and whatnot. You know, I, I have an anxiety disorder. And so this, this time is not like, ideal for that, right? It's, it's, it's difficult. Um, and so one of the monks, you know, he said something that I've honestly, I've been thinking about every single day and it, and it is precisely what you said that, that we have to focus on the things we can control and just relinquish the things that we can't. 
And so pra- practically speaking, you know, there are hundreds of time each, times each day where I'll start worrying about the future, whether it's about, um, you know, my own health or the health of my family or the health of my, my dad or, you know, other family members, or whether it's about the economy or about, um, you know, how my friends are doing. And I, and I realize that I, I just can't control any of that. As much as I want to control, I, I can't control any of that. The only thing that I have control over is my own response to them, so uh, to these people. And so Father Mark uh, in that piece said, you know, just focus on how you can, uh, on the things that are directly present in front of you. If my son is directly present in front of me, for example, um, what is the point of me focusing on anxiety that I might have about other things when I can control my own way of being completely present to him? And so I don't have a lot of practical advice apart from the fact that I keep um, trying to redirect the, uh, the focus of my mind to the present moment rather than to the amorphous future that I, that I have no control over at all. You, you mentioned um, anxiety being um, kind of the, the disorder. And I'm wondering, like, how does one discern uh, the difference between, like, the fact that, that anxiety is a problem, but bringing it to prayer? Like, what's the difference? Or where's the line of the anxiety you can let go of and what you, what you struggle with? Well, I think, um, uh, I think Martin Laird's book is really helpful on this. And, and, and that is that in times of silence, instead of allowing ourselves to go down that rabbit trail, which is where our anxieties take us, right? And anxiety is so, um, uh, it's so compelling, right? Because we can create these incredible visions about worst case scenarios about everything, right? Uh, and and for, the, for people that have good imaginations, and most people do, uh, that picture can be so compelling and so what he talks about is, is that when you find yourself going down that, just you know, very sort of gently and carefully return yourself back to whether it's Lectio Divina, whether it's the reading of, of Scripture, or whether it's that silent prayer. Um, don't allow yourself to go down those, those paths. Now, you will go down those paths all the time. In a 20-minute time of silence, for example, you'll go down that path about 100,000 times. But it's just a matter of coming back to it gently and sort of training the mind to recognize that um, that, that anxiety is not actually um, real, or at, at, at least the imagination, the thing that you're, anxi- that you're anxious about, is not real in the way that you are real. Um, Greg, I have a question about schedules. I do not love the idea of getting up at three to pray every day. However, it does feel like there's something to the idea of having just a routine that you can stick to. On the other hand, a lot of us, even though we're home, I feel like there are enough random things in life that are knocking all of us off our schedules. Why do you think in the rule of Benedict, there is such a like strict delineation of work and labor and prayer? And, and how does that inform the way that the monks live? And is there anything we can glean from that? Yeah, I mean... You are talking to somebody who loves a good schedule, right? So I, <clears throat> the way that I operate, and, and my wife can attest to this, is that I have my, my 
days planned to the minute, generally speaking, right? Um, and and you know, so I understand the appeal of that. Now, that's I'm not getting up at three in the morning, right? I'm not doing anything like that, but um, I like having those sort of clearly delineated times. And I think um, Benedict was onto something by by emphasizing this because we can so easily uh, waste time, right? Um, whether it's, I mean, especially, I don't mean to harp on phones. I mean, literally my phone is, is a foot away from me. So I'm not, this is me being totally hypocritical. But, um, you know, it, it, it's so it's so easy to waste so much time just on doing nothing, right? And so a schedule can be very helpful in terms of creating a sort of rule of life, as it were, where you carve out times during the day where you're working and you carve out times of the day where you're not working. And when you carve out times of the day where you're present to the people around you. So at home, for example, it's complicated because all three of my kids are in school. My wife teaches piano and she's teaching piano virtually online right now. And I also am, you know, I'm trying to write a book and I've got, I'm grading exams and all this sort of stuff. Well, you know, I've got it carved out in my schedule that from eight until 4.30, you know, I'm, I'm just doing that, right? I'm just working. But at 4.30, all the work goes away and I am just endeavoring to be completely present to the people around me. If I kept doing the work or if I kept feeling like I had to do the work, then I would always be sort of pulled away from them, if that makes sense. And so a schedule where you're just, you give yourself, my wife doesn't see it this way, right? She, she doesn't see it as freeing. For me, I see it as freeing because it, it, I don't have to think about work after 4.30, right? All I have to think about is my family. I do not schedule. I don't make lists. And I, and especially in this time without you know, events to mark my days, I found time just like completely disappearing. <laughs> I don't know where it goes. And too much of it is probably on Instagram. <laughs> well, it disappears, but then it also seems like it's lasting forever. That's the weird irony of it. Yeah, no, it is very, very strange. Um, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, being drawn to the Trappist by Thomas Merton, probably the most famous monk um, at Getsem Getsemane. Um, this is someone that many of our listeners have heard canonized on, on our show. We always ask our guests if they could canonize one person. Um, and Merton's name has come up a few times. Uh, can you, can you talk a little bit about why he was such a draw for you when you were young? Um, I think that's common for a lot of people. He's kind of like a, a gateway Catholic for, <laughs> for folks who find, who stumble on a seven story mountain. Well, when I was 23, I was newly married. Um, and we, my wife and I had moved uh, a, a, across the country. We were living in Canada at the time. We're Canadians. And we had moved across the country for me to start another degree. And um, I started having these strange, um, basically, I call it a vocational crisis, where I really wasn't sure if I wanted to keep going to school, what I wanted to do with my life. And it brought about a sort of existential crisis where I, I just had no idea what I was going to do. And so I read the Cemetery Mountain at a time when I was kind of searching. And that book, for me anyways, is all about somebody having a very similar vocational crisis. Now, I wasn't going to become a monk. I mean, I just got married. But 
but having a, a, a crisis where he was trying to figure out what was he going to do with his life. And I found it immensely reassuring when he gets an answer to his vocational crisis. And that's what appealed to me about Merton. Um, when he enters into the monastery, I breathed a sigh of relief, right? And it was just, um, there, there was something beautiful about that. And, and so, I mean, <clears throat> I might as well declare it now. I mean, I, I loved it so much that in a sort of fit of youthful exuberance, I got a tattoo of a drawing Merton did um, <laughs> on, my, on my left shoulder. Uh, and it's a, it's a drawing you did of a monk. My kids call it Tom, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that's really what compelled me, uh, to read him more and more. And then that helped me, that led me to sort of get into his other writings about silence as also, as well as also ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. Is that a, uh, book that you'd recommend for people who are, I, I imagine there's a lot of people with this time on their hands that are sort of asking a lot of bigger questions now is seven story mountain a go-to? No, no, I wouldn't say anybody would start with the seven story mountain. Wow. Did not expect that. I was really just setting you up with the soft book. <laughs> yeah, no. The reason why, you know, Merton was kind of, um, ashamed of that book later on, uh, because he's, he's pretty close minded in that, in, in the seven story mountain. And he has kind of the, uh, the fervor or the zeal of a convert. Um, and I say that as somebody who is also a convert, right? So I, I'm not criticizing there, but, um, there's a story. Living in Louisville is great. I get to meet people who used to know Merton, and so one time I uh, I ran into this guy, and he he said he found out I was studying at Bellarmine. He said, "Oh yeah, I ran into Merton one time in a doctor's office." He's an older guy, and I said, "Oh really? Well, what 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 was that about?" He said, "Oh, it was the late '60s," and I said I said to him, "Are you Merton?" He said, "Yeah." I said, I read the seven story mountain. I, it didn't make any sense to me at all. The guy said, and Merton says to him back, he says, well, to be honest, it doesn't make much sense to me either anymore. So the, I, I, if I were, I think the best place to start with Merton is his um, journals. And there's a, actually an edited collection of his journals. He has, his journals are seven volumes in length, but there's a one volume um, uh, edition that is, is really good and it introduces you to his life uh, in a way that you can see the sort of evolution of his thought. That's where I would start. And then if you're really interested in his writings on contemplation, he has a book called New Seeds of Contemplation, which is very good. Well, that is a, a hot take for the for the Catholic world. What? Stop reading Seven Story Mountain. Yeah. And we do have all the time to read um, his journals. So that's a yeah, that's a place to start. Yeah, I've read the uh, I've read all the seven volumes two or three times. They're good. That's good stuff. Oh man, uh, well, uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, uh, we have one final question for you. Uh, if you can canonize anyone, uh, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Wow. You can say Merton, but I'll be disappointed. Yeah. If you do. Yes, it's I'm a little definitely predictable. Definitely not going to say Merton. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I actually, I, I, I'm pretty content if Merton never gets canonized. Um, oh, uh, I, I think another hot take. Yeah. Yeah. I want that essay in America. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, I think that he was just, um, wonderfully human and his, his faults are available for everybody to see. And, uh, I worry sometimes when can, when we canonize somebody that we tend to disregard all their humanity and whatnot. So uh, I don't want him to be uh, a sort of, you know, 
a, a pious caricature of somebody that I never knew or understood. Who do you want to be the pious caricature? <laughs> Who do I want? Yeah. <laughs> well, if I, you know what, if I could, it, it would be somebody related to baseball. Uh, uh, because uh, I, it's going to be the unnamed person who created what I think is the perfect game. That's that's who I want to be canonized. Do we we don't know who created baseball? It's more well. There's a myth about Albus uh, or about uh, uh, Abner Doubleday, but he probably didn't do it. No, we have unnamed saints. We have unnamed saints in the church, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We should we should all ask the intercession for the intercession of whoever created baseball. Awesome, Greg. Where can people follow your work? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter probably too much. <laughs> yes, um, at Gregory K Hillis uh, is my Twitter handle, and that that pretty much contains. Uh, really too much of my life. Well, I love it. I think you're a light in a, in that dark place. So <laughs> I hope you stay on it. Thanks. All right, Greg. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Thank you. Bye.